Blog Talk Radio. Thanks for listening to Eastern Airlines Talk Radio. My name is Neil Holland, the producer of the show, and we have a great show for you tonight. And to all the listeners around the world, we say welcome. Hello, Eastern family and friends. It's great having you with us. My name is Chuck Albright, and I'm sitting in for Jim Hart tonight. He's a little under the weather. I hope you're feeling better, Jim, if you can hear us. Live from beautiful villages in central Florida, where the area weather is 70 degrees. Welcome, and thank you for listening. And calling, if you are calling, listening and calling the show, it has truly made us the radio voice of Eastern Airlines. In fact, we can now say that we've become Eastern Airlines' international radio show with over 50 countries listening in. We love to hear your comments and share your memories with the radio listeners from around the world during the broadcast. If you haven't called the show before, all you need to do is call 213-816-1611 and just say hello. Hello. Uh, Hello. Chuck, are you with me? Uh, I think our announcer just, uh, we lost him. So uh, we're happy to. Chuck, are you, are you with us? 
I want to open the microphones. We've got a little difficulty here, and we're trying to resolve that. And I've got my engineer standing by, Emery Martinelli. And I want to ask uh, Jerry Frost, do you hear me? I hear you, Neil. Okay, we're coming. It must be Chuck's uh, communications. But yeah, if you uh, want, I'll, I, I'll, I'll carry on for uh, Chuck. Would you please take over, Jerry? <laughs> okay. Well, folks, uh, we can identify many countries around the world who uh, listen in with our blog talk radio application. Isn't that great that we can keep the Eastern legacy going out to not only the Eastern family, but to the listeners from the many different countries around the world? That's what we try to do every week on the EAL radio show. Won't you join us by adding your voice to these broadcasts? Our thanks also to those who choose to listen by computer using the radio icon on our homepage at www.ealradioshow.com or perhaps by signing in at the site of our provider, Blog Talk Radio, at www.blogtalkradio slash capedie, that's C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E, Remember to abbreviate CAPTAIN to CAP, C-A-P-T. Should you wish to talk during our live broadcast, feel free to use our call-in number. That's 213-816-1611. I'll repeat, 213-816-1611 at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Let me repeat the number (laughs) for the third time so you can write it down. For your Monday night visits. By the way, tell your friends about uh, visiting us. And that number again, 213-816-1611. And don't forget, you can listen to any of our 411 Monday night broadcasts and the 75 plus Thursday broadcast by simply going to blogtalkradio.com slash Cap Eddie, that's at C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E, and scrolling down through the archive of broadcasts. Each episode is briefly described. We're getting close to 500 episodes. Holy blue sonico. <laughs> Our lines are always open for calls, and if you choose not to participate and talk live with your host, we ask you please mute your phone as our producer does not have the capability of filtering out uh, background noises. Well, I see we're number one for takeoff, so, Captain, let's get flight 413 in the air. Eastern, Tower 413, you're cleared to land. 7 left, we're 13, we're rolling. Tower 413, this is Atlanta Tower. You're cleared to land. Roger, Atlanta Tower, Eastern 413, turning final, clear to land.
Atlanta Tower, Eastern 413, contact Atlanta Ground Control at 128.9. Roger, going over to 128.9. Ground, this is Eastern 413. Uh, Eastern 413, are you on the gate tonight? Uh, no, sir, we're going over to the freight area. We're using the... Uh, Aircraft as a freighter tonight, and we're staying with it till the aircraft is ready to go. It's going to be a long night. Roger that, Eastern. From passengers to cargo, you're cleared to your freight area. That's Eastern's new cargo aircraft, isn't it? Uh, Roger that. Uh, yeah, we're on the ground for about uh, an hour and a half, and then we're on our way with the cargo. This is the... Uh, Boeing 727QC quick change, which is amazing. We're the first to fly it and the only one. It takes about an hour and 20 minutes to take the seats out, and uh, they're on roller tracks so that we can uh, roll in eight A containers. Each container is approximately uh, 3,000 pounds. It's quite a deal. And how did we get to this new aircraft design, by the way? Well, let's start out by talking about a few facts you may not know and may surprise you. Number one, the first air cargo flight was in 1910. Would you believe that? That came a mere seven years later in 1910 when a Wright Model B aircraft was flown 65 miles. That's 105 kilometers to deliver 200 miles, 91 kilometers of silk from Dayton to Columbus. One of the 10 bolts of silk, which was bright pink, was later cut up and distributed as souvenirs, and it wasn't long before more companies got involved. Jerry Foss, do you have another one for us? Oh, yes, Dorothy. The, the second is the craziest air cargo market entry, DHL Express. DHL Express Air Courier Service really took off when its founder, Larry Hillbloom, saw a niche for courier delivery, making ocean shipping faster. Hillbloom would fly ocean bill of ladings from San Francisco to Honolulu in advance of the ship's landing, speeding up paperwork at the port and saving days or even weeks at the ports. Today, DHL Express boosts a fleet of approximately 120 airplanes. The company still aggressively pursues innovation. Mike Scott, what do you have as the number three? Yes, Jerry. The largest air cargo plane in the world is the Antonov AN-225, which can take off with a maximum weight of 600, uh, correction, 640 tons. Yes, you heard that right. That's 1,280,000 pounds. Wow. Is this the longest airplane? This is the longest airplane created, with a, and it's got a wingspan of 290 feet, more than double the Wright brothers' first solo flight of 120 feet. Chuck, you got info on the longest scheduled air cargo route? Yep, well, Mike. There he is. Yeah, we got uh, you, Chuck. Would be Go ahead. I Panama City that happened February 2016. Emirates are starting a regular 8,588 miles service between Dubai and the Emirates and Panama City, Panama. That's an exhausting 
17 hours, 35 minutes traveling westbound. Talk about long haul, sure. It's primarily a passenger flight, but the plane can carry up to 16 tons of cargo in its belly. Or that's 32,000 pounds of cargo. Dorothy? Chuck, we stumbled over this countdown of the 10 craziest things ever shoved into a plane. And number three is a giant freaking laser capable of blasting ballistic missiles to smithereens in midair, or it's known as the U.S. Department of Defense, the Boeing YAL-1 Airborne Laser Testbed. After the project was canceled, the plane was moved to storage in Arizona. Also included on the list was 200,000 pounds of dog food and dog food flavoring, a herd of cows, and the entire Daycock Cow Rally. Jerry? Well, folks, let's take an Eastern commercial break. My golly, the only way to travel these days. Am I right, son? Yes, sir, it sure is. Wasn't this way years back. Oh, you young people don't know how soft you've got it. Yes, sir. Uh, this airplane is just like a limousine. Feel like a millionaire sitting back all relaxed and saying, drive on. Follow my analogy, son? Yes, sir. Anytime there's a choice, I always say Eastern. Yes, sir. Tickets, baggage, they do it all for you. You just sit back and enjoy it. You know, that's the trouble with you young people. You don't know how to relax. Simple relaxation is a lost art these days. Am I right, son? It is hard to stay awake on an Eastern Airlines flight. The food is so very good. And the service is so simpatico. The ride is so comfortable. Oh, pardon me. <laughs> Want to catch up and some rest? Come fly with Eastern. And, Jerry, this is the commercial I wanted to everyone to hear. First time I've ever heard trucking, it. trucking driving down your profits, <laughs> get airspeed at truck rates with Eastern's cost-cutter containers. After all, trucking high-density freight over 500 miles can put you in a jam. We'll bet Eastern can match truck rates and raise you 30,000 feet at 500 miles an hour. Imagine, rates comparable to truck rates at airspeed everywhere we fly in the U.S. So why wait? Let us show you how cost cutters can cut your costs. Call us today. Well, Dorothy, we also found that the uh, Anatov aircraft... Is the low speed of trucking driving down... You got it. Excuse me. (laughs) Okay, Dorothy, I repeat. Uh, We also found that the Anatov aircraft, which we said earlier, had taken off at over 1 million pounds takeoff weight, and it had a load delivery of 418,834 pounds. This whale of a plane once swallowed a gas-powered station generator weighing 418,834 pounds, the current world record for a single-item airlifted payload. It also holds the world record for total airlifted payload of 559,577 pounds. Hey, Jerry, we also found that the highest altitude delivered was the height of 250 miles above the Earth. Wow. It starts off in the air, at least, uh, that's what they say, but, uh, but soon moves beyond the atmosphere. Two private companies contracted by NASA to deliver cargo to the International Space Station 
orbiting the planet 250 miles up in the air. In mid-December, the latest cargo load to make the five-day journey weighed 7,700 pounds of food, clothing, computer gear, spacewalk equipment, science experiments, and other supplies. Wow. Well, for you techies, number the first FAA-approved drone delivery, July 2015. Amazon's been running tests out of a field in Washington, but in July 2015, Flirty, an Australian UAV, an unmanned aerial vehicle delivery startup, delivered supplies from an airfield to a medical clinic in Virginia. The supplies had been brought to the airfield by a NASA drone. That drone doesn't count because although it was controlled from the ground for safety reasons, it included a pilot. A natural progression from model aircraft, the first drone prototypes in 1970s were modified lawnmowers designed to carry bombs. Uh, Colleen, let's tell our listeners that the busiest air cargo airport is Hong Kong Airport. Five years ago, a list of the world's busiest airports by cargo traffic is Hong Kong International Airport with 4.8 million tons of loaded and unloaded freight. Memphis International Airport comes in second. Perhaps the most surprising entry, at least for those not in the industry, is the Ted Stevens Anchorage International Airport at number five. FedEx Express and UPS Airlines operate major hubs for cargo heading to and from Northeast Asia. For the past few years, Hong Kong Airport served as the busiest cargo airport in the world. In 2016, Memphis International Airport became the list topper because of its developments. An average of 75 to 80 flights is scheduled daily, and a half of them are cargo. Another fun fact, it's also the biggest cargo airport in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, and let's throw in this one as a bonus. Air slash ocean spot rate ratio sky high. The rule of thumb for cargo spot rates is that air cargo is about 11 times more expensive than sea freight. Well, not anymore. The Lodestar recently reported that while air freight rates are rising moderately, sea freight rates have been plunging, catapulting the air-sea freight multiplier from 11 to 22. That is double the standard rule of thumb, which is record. And it's predicted to stay around this level for the foreseeable future. This is bad news for some commodities of air cargo. In recent years, improvements in systems and processes for both shippers and carriers has made the prospect of making a model shift from air to sea more feasible. And the current large multiplier makes switching an an even more financially attractive option. I promise this is all I have for you guys and our listeners. This piece of technology now delivers pizza. (laughs) Flirty is is a drone delivery service that reinvents the delivery process, and just recently it partnered with Domino's Pizza. The revolutionary drone delivered a hot Domino's Pizza in Auckland, New Zealand. (laughs) Would you like to have this type of air freight in your neighborhood? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, Colleen, I would add one more. One of the strangest shipments ever. Whale sharks. Imagine stuffing a, a more or less than 42 feet, 4,200 pound whale shark in an aquarium. Now, that must be a pretty pretty uh, interesting uh, load in there. But how <clears throat> how to add three more between 2005 and 2006? Two female and two male whale sharks were transported from Taipei to uh, Ty, uh, from Taiwan to a Georgia aquarium in the United States for aquatic preservation purposes. That must have been a interesting roll of the of the ocean in that one with uh, two males and two females. <laughs> Excuse me. But wait, there's more to the story. They also ship 42 containers holding smaller aquatic animals. Oh. Now that we've heard about some strange facts about air freight, let's look at the history of getting cargo from here to there. Early aviation promoters were always looking for practical uses for the airplane. One idea was to use them as carriers of freight. The first practical demonstration of air freight occurred in November 1910 when a department store shipped a bulk of silk by air, something similar to what we mentioned above. From Dayton to Columbus, Ohio, reported in the local Columbus newspaper, the story noted that the shipment had beaten the railroad express between the two cities. Can you believe that? In 1919, American uh, Railway Express used a a converted Hadley plane bomber in an attempt to fly 1,100 pounds, that's 500 kilograms of freight, from Washington, D.C. to Chicago. A frozen radiator forced the plane to land in Ohio, but the company continued its efforts to move freight by air. Airlines across the country flew freight in the late 1920s, benefiting American businesses when they needed parts or merchandise as quickly as possible. The advent of air freight also allowed businesses to keep less inventory on hand. During the 1920s, the volume of freight shipped by air grew significantly. In 1927, only 45,859 pounds, or 20,801 kilograms, were shipped. By 1929, that figure had grown to 257,443 pounds, or 116,774 kilograms. Then by 1931, to more than 1 million pounds, that's 453, 592 kilograms per year. In addition to the air freight flown by American Railway Express, Henry Ford's Express Company carried 1 million pounds of freight for the Ford Company when it started in 1925 and averaged more than 3 million pounds. Folks, that's one point. 36 million kilograms. By the end of 1929, then the U.S. Post Office also shipped additional air freight. Although there were a few attempts to organize air freight airlines from the 1920s on, the first commercial airlines, 
that all cargo did not emerge until after World War II. Well, Dorothy, National Air Transport, one of the companies that originally made up United Airlines, was founded on November 14, 1926, for the purpose of carrying parcels. This airline delivered the first air cargo in the United States on September 1, 1927, between Dallas and New York. Another company that was an early promoter of air cargo was American Railway Express, renamed Railway Express Agency, or REA, in March of 1929. It was a firm that managed to get a group of small airlines to contract to deliver freight. A competitor to REA was General Air Express, founded in 1932. Because of low rates, neither company made much money in the early 1930s. Air freight at the time contributed just under 4% of all air traffic revenues. Eventually, the two companies, REA and General Air Express, found it useful to combine their operations, and beginning in February 1935, they operated as one. Now, United Airlines began its own air freight delivery service just before the beginning of World War II. On December 23, 1940, the airline inaugurated what some historians believe was the first all-cargo service in U.S. airline history. The airline used Douglas DC-4 aircraft to deliver mail from New York to Chicago and back. The route was short-lived and ended within five months. Air Freight remained a a sideline operation to mail and passenger traffic until March 14, 1941, when the big four airlines, United, American, TWA, and Eastern, formed Air Cargo, Inc. to deliver freight. Air Cargo began operations in December 1941 and operated through most of the war. Its last regular flight was in November 1944. By the end of the war, many of the airlines, including United and TWA, began their own independent air freight services. In general, entrepreneurs found it difficult to enter the air freight market because of resistance from the established passenger carriers. The passenger airlines believed that New air freight airlines that offered low rates and irregular services would destabilize the whole commercial aviation sector. The established air carriers, who had formed Air Cargo Inc., were especially afraid of small-time operators, such as Slick Airways, Flying Tiger, California Eastern, and others. Through the late 1940s, these small airlines, the established giants, and the government's Civil Aeronautics Board, CAB, wrangled over how to hand out contracts and set the proper rates for freight transport. In August 1949, the CAB finally gave permission to four all-freight airlines to operate. These were Slick, Flying Tiger, U.S. Airlines, and Air News. Uh, Colleen, <clears throat> excuse me, neither U.S. Airlines nor Air News survived long. U.S. Airlines operated for a while on the New York-Miami route on Air Force contracts with a series of accidents in 1952, as well as the threat of bankruptcy, folded the airline. Air News met a similar fate in June of 1951 after incurring heavy losses. The two did not 
did survive were Slick Airways, which was founded by Earl F. Slick in January 1946, and Flying Tiger. When it began service, Slick operated a fleet of 10 Curtis C-46 aircraft. By the end of the 1940s, the company had become the country's most successful all-air freight operator. Although Slick enjoyed moderate growth, it also faced problems. Established passenger carriers such as American Airlines had introduced air freight flights that offered stiff competition. Since the passenger airlines could rely, rely on established facilities and routes, their fixed costs for transportation cargo were lowered. Under the threat from the passenger airlines, Slick and Flying Tigers decided to merge into one airline in 1954. Unfortunately, labor problems at both airlines prompted them to abandon this idea. The failure to merge was a big blow to the airlines. Slick continued operations for a while, but temporarily closed down in February 1958, unable to compete with the passenger airlines. The company claimed that lack of government support for all air freight airlines had been the major cause of their downfall. Although Slick resumed operations in October 1962, the CAB eventually suspended Slick's activities in August 1965. The company's operations were acquired by smaller freight carriers. Uh, Don, uh, Flying Tiger uh, line fared much better. The airline had been founded on June 25, 1945, by Robert Prescott, a C-46 Flying Tigers pilot during the war. Prescott started with a fleet of 14 Bud RB-1 Conestago. <laughs> Excuse me on that one, Conestago aircraft. Bizarre-looking, wafer-thin, stainless steel planes that did not have the very good flying characteristics. Beginning in August 1945, Prescott's pilots were flying coast-to-coast carrying freight. Unlike Slick, Prescott made sure to diversify into both military and civilian markets. The company survived the competition with established passenger airlines, partly because of its diversified customers and partly because of the favorable CAB judgments. Although Flying Tigers faced stiff competition in the early 1960s from new small-time cargo carriers, it did well. The airline also signed cooperative agreements with rail companies to deliver its freight door-to-door. By the mid-1960s, Flying Tigers was making an annual profit of $20 million dollars and was the largest air cargo airline in the country. Its only real competitor was Airlift International, Inc., a much smaller company that had inherited some of Slick's assets. Despite widespread hopes for a vibrant industry, the air freight industry did not grow as expected. Air freight, in fact, remained a very small part of total air traffic. Many who tried to break into the air freight business did not survive their heavy losses. Flying Tigers remained an an exception. Most of the big-time operators, such as Slick and Airlift, faded from the scene. Major passenger airlines, 
such as United Airlines, continued to play a large role in the freight industry. In March of 1964, United became the first airline in the country to offer nonstop transcontinental all-cargo service. Well, it was only in the 1980s that a new airline changed the face of the air freight business. A young entrepreneur named Fred Smith believed that combining passenger air traffic with freight air traffic was, um, as the established airlines were doing, was not the most efficient way of doing business. He believed that the route patterns for the two were totally different. He also argued that combining freight with passenger traffic slowed down cargo delivery. Smith, with a lot of financial support, built a hub in Memphis, Tennessee, for his exclusive freight air delivery service, which he called Federal Express. One of the most important selling points was his idea of next-day delivery, a service that he guaranteed. The company began operations in April 1973, and while the initial years were financially difficult, by 1976, Federal Express was showing a profit. By 1982, the company had as many as 76 aircraft, including 39 Boeing 727s and four Douglas DC-10s. In 1983, the company reported revenues of $1 billion, an unheard of amount for a company that had existed for only 10 years. In 1989, Federal Express acquired Tiger International, Inc., the owners of Flying Tigers. The two airlines merged in August 1989, and as a result, Federal Express became the world's largest full-service all-cargo airline. In 1994, the company officially changed the name to its operating division to FedEx. Yes, Kelly, in uh, United Postal Service, UPS, one of FedEx's main competitors, also maintains a large presence in both the air freight and air mail markets. The origins of UPS go back as early as 1907 to a bicycle-based delivery service. In its early years of operation, the UPS primarily focused on contractual contract services to retail stores. It was only in 1950s that the company diversified into package delivery for a wide range of customers, including private and commercial clients. UPS operated a short-lived air service beginning in 1929, but the company began sustained air service via its UPS Blue Label Air much later in 1953. In 1988, UPS received permission from the FAA to operate its own airline as opposed to leasing, known as UPS Airline. Since then, UPS Airline has grown dramatically. In 2001, this was the ninth airline in the United States, largest airline in the United States. On average, UPS delivers 2 million Air Express packages and documents per day. In, 1980s, in the 1980s, UPS also expanded into international routes for documents and smaller packages. The FedEx cargo airline used Boeing 727 for both U.S. and European service. At the turn of the century, the air freight industry remained, remains a mix of dedicated large companies such as FedEx, small-time operators such as OCS Air Freight, and passenger airlines such as United Airlines that operate cargo divisions. Jerry? 
Pierre, are you with us? I'm sorry about that, Neil. Uh, let me tell That's you a- about the freighters. I flew for Eastern Airlines. Combi aircraft typically flew an oversized cargo door, as well as tracks on the cabin floor to allow the seats to be added or removed. Typically configured for both passenger and cargo duty, the passenger compartment is pressurized to a higher pressure to prevent potential fumes from cargo entry uh, to the passenger area. Eastern did not carry passengers and cargo together in the QC aircraft. They are in the Combi class. In 1968, Braniff was flying Boeing 727-100 QC, that's quick change, jetliners, in a configuration that facilitated uh, the transportation of palletized freight uh, containers as well as 51 passengers in an all-economy class cabin and scheduled airline operations. According to to a Braniff uh, system timetable dated July 1, 1968, the airline was operated weekly, red-eye flights, with round-trip services at night with its Boeing 727 Combi aircraft on the following routings, New York, Washington, Nashville, Memphis, Dallas, Seattle, Portland, Dallas Love Field, and Denver. Dallas Love Field. Wow. The freight pallets were loaded in the front section of the aircraft by forklift via a large cargo door located on the side of the fuselage after the flight deck while passengers boarded and deplaned via the integral air stairs located at the rear underneath the trijet's engines. At Eastern, the QC was either passengers or freight, and freight was flown during the dark side of the clock. Well, I did fly those flights way back uh, in those early days. In fact, earlier than the 1963s when uh, the 727 QCs came onto the scene, uh, I was able to fly the Super Constellation freighters, and one memorable flight and and uh, and Neil asked me to uh, uh, talk about some of my experiences. Well, the only two experiences that I can recall flying both the Constellations and the Boeing 727s were this. One dark night on the Super Connie, flying from Houston to Atlanta, we were at altitude, flying along, pitch black, nothing going on, everybody's trying to stay awake. And all of a sudden, the fire warning light or the uh, the fire warning bell went off. The red lights went on, and I'm telling you, if the three of us weren't strapped to our seats, we would hit our heads at the overhead <laughs> panels. Well, uh, it was a it was a false uh, alarm, but I'll tell you, it awoke us that night. And to this day, 50 years later or more, I still remember that particular flight. And that's my only experience that I can recollect flying the Constellation freighters. The, the second <laughs> recollection uh, of, of uh, the, the, beast, the, the Boeing 727 QCs was one month uh, I bid a particular flight, and the flight was this. Uh, we would leave Atlanta about 7 o'clock at night, fly nonstop uh, down to Palm Beach, Florida, lay, lay over, Wake up the next morning, have a leisure breakfast, fly back to Atlanta, 
And then we were supposed to have stayed there for about an hour or so, picked up a Boeing QC to Jacksonville. Well, that particular month, UPS was on strike. So here was my flight for the whole month, is that I would leisurely check in at Eastern at 7 o'clock in the afternoon or in the evening, and the captain, I'll never forget, was uh, Henry Hines. Uh, I, at that time, he was a very senior captain. And we would fly down to uh, Palm Beach with our layover, get up in the morning, have a nice breakfast, come back to Atlanta. And guess what? Instead of normally having to wait, picking up the QC to fly to Jacksonville and back, we got to go home because UPS was on strike. So all month long, gosh, I could have held a part-time job in Atlanta and flown this route. <laughs> and, and that is really my two recollections of, of flying cargo flights with Eastern, Neil. That's very good. You know, yeah. Mike, I don't know whether you flew uh, freight or not. Did you? No, I never uh, really got involved. Uh, with it. I flew a, uh, a 727 freighter one time that had been converted into a corporate airplane and all the rest of the ones that I flew basically were uh, corporate airplanes and usually down in the belly there was eight uh, fuel tanks five in the front and two to three in the back and the forward cargo compartment was closed off but I do have a lot of stories some other on another show or whatever about what we used to do with a lot of this uh, excessive baggage and stuff when you had no place to put it and it was uh, a little a little bit shady what we had to do to get everything on the airplane a few times. But most of my experiences with any of the 727 QCs was um, on, on the maintenance end. Where, uh, so what that, that was, we had plenty of experiences on that, but that's not to uh, take away from the flying end for tonight. <laughs> well, no, uh, not necessarily, because uh, I think, Chuck, you were involved in QC maintenance too, weren't you? Yes, I was. I was on the night shift uh, in Miami, and the plane would come in uh, probably around 6 or so, and they'd park it in front of the 727 hangar, and they would send a crew out there, and we had two hours, that's what they gave us, to swap the plane out, and we would take the, 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 the pallets and stuff and put them in trailers and stack them in trailers so they wouldn't get wet or anything. And then we'd um, we'd send it over to the cargo area. They would uh, tow it over the cargo area or taxi it over. Some of them. sometimes the flight crews would show up there at the hangar, and uh, they would load the cargo on it, and they'd fly it all night long. And then if you were there, say they would give us four hours overtime, which we'd make twelve hours, the plane would be back. And then we'd do the same thing. We'd open the door up. And take all the the pallets with our little our forklift, put them back, and they roll back, and like he was talking about, and we'd lock them in, and there they are. They're all nice and clean and everything because the cleaners clean the, the seats and everything before we put them in the the trailers. So um, we did that night after night for uh, well I did for about uh, two months, and then I got transferred to the 1011 hangar, but it was a pretty slick operation. I, you know, when we first did it, I said, gee, I don't know how they're going to do this. But some of the older mechanics said, we'll show you how to do it. We'll be out of here in two hours. And while they went away, while the plane went away, 
we eat lunch and then uh, um, we uh, go back and, and, and get ready for the plane to come back at that, that night. So it was really a good job. We, I mean, it wasn't like getting your hands dirty or greasy or anything because everything was nice and clean. But um, that's that was my extent with the QC job. I later on learned to um, uh, Eastern learned uh, to uh, hire, uh, not hire, but designate taxi and run-up people. I happened to be one of them, and that was they, the flight crews wouldn't taxi them over to the to the uh, loading place where they put the cargo on anymore. We'd have to do it. So it was nice to break up the evening uh, when the planes came and, and went. But um, I, I remember doing that night after night, and they never missed a beat. It was the most, I think, most of the slickest operations that Eastern ever had as far as, the, you know, mechanics yeah. and ground crews are concerned. Well, I, I got in on the QC. I got in on the QC back in the '60s when we first got the aircraft, and marveled at the uh, the efficiency of that aircraft being utilized the way it was and the way it was intended, and it worked really well with Eastern. And uh, I think we were on schedule every time I flew the QC, and I bid trips uh, that. Uh, or night trips at the time. I forgot exactly why I did that insane thing. But uh, uh, it was kind of like wanting to be with FedEx, I guess, but uh, to find out how those guys did it. But after a while, I uh, got off of that and and uh, went over to the Boeing 757 and, and flew that uh, for a while. And I was real happy on that airplane. And uh, for some reason, I put in a bid that uh, you could put it in, and, and it was dormant until your seniority entitled you to go to that equipment. And, of course, all the guys and the gals, I guess, uh, Colleen, the same with you, I don't know whether they paid the, the flight attendants anymore for flying the big equipment, but they did the pilots. And so I wanted that bigger, uh, you know, bigger airplane, bigger money. And uh, I had forgotten all about it, and I said, my golly, if I could just go through the rest of my career on this wonderful, beautiful, beautiful Boeing 757, I'd be happy. And then one day, my wife and I had taken a trip overseas over to Germany. And uh, we had, uh, did a, uh, I think it was a 10-day trip over there, uh, just as a vacation. Came back, got on the bus going to the parking lot, and one of the pilots said, hey, Neil. I see that you're on the A300. I said, no, no, I'm flying the Boeing 757. And he said, well, it looks like you're going to Germany. I said, well, no, my wife and I just got back from Germany. He said, no, <laughs> for sure, for real. You got it on the bid. I said, what bid? I had completely forgot about that. Now, what does that have to do with cargo and freight? Well, when I stepped on the Airbus... It was moonlight time, the moonlight special. Eastern had signed a contract with Consolidated Air Freight to carry oh, yeah. cargo in those enormous cargo bins of the A300. Yeah. And that's the only trips that I could hold because it was all-nighters. And I did get a little bit more money flying at night, but Golly, Pete! I mean, you know, you left Atlanta at about ten o'clock at night on a on a uh, on a consolidated freight with passengers on top, 
and freight on the bottom. Passengers going at $49 a leg and uh, wherever they wanted to go, the Eastern Flu. And, of course, the first leg was always Atlanta to Houston because that was the terminal for the air freight that we were hauling for Consolidated. And it was a marvelous operation. I mean, those guys just had it down. It, it, it was so efficient. And I think that's the way Eastern always worked. I mean, uh, the dedicated people, very timely, and, uh, and uh, that's the way it was with the, uh, with the, the moonlight. And uh, the, we would get another airplane and, or either we'd stay on that airplane. And depending on the leg, our next leg was usually the West Coast, which was either uh, Los Angeles or San Francisco or Portland or Seattle. Those were the main uh, legs out of Houston. And then, of course, coming back uh, to the east, uh, when you brought them back, you would go back through Houston and then they would. Uh, spoke you out to uh, either the New York area, the Northeast area, and it was a, it was a great operation. It really was, and we had a contract to fly Consolidated for two years. And at the end of two years, Consolidated said uh, we can do it ourselves, and uh, and the Moonlight Special was over. But I didn't fly the two years on the Airbus because I downbid back to the 757 <laughs> and uh that's where i finished my career so it was the end of the 720 the end of the 727 qc's kind of came when the first 1011s came along because they could carry yeah. all yeah. of that freight down below yeah and i don't you, you may remember you may not uh the dc8s that we had were the 63s they were DC-863 PFs yeah. is what they were for passenger freight. Even though uh-huh. Eastern never used them as as freighters, though underneath those, uh, if they took the interior out of there, there's rollers on the on the flooring in there so that you could put the small, low-profile pro- containers in through the uh, passenger entry door and configure uh-huh. the airplane that way. But Eastern never flew it that way. The uh, subsequent owners, uh, they, they some of them had done that. Prior to putting a cargo door in them. Well, <laughs> just just to remind some of the guys that the, the 1011 program that I worked in for, they they used the big containers and they had all the containers were uh, what they call motorized. Uh, you never really pushed them anywhere. They came in on a on a, a sled, so to speak. There was like I think two on a sled, and you brought it up to the cargo door, and you just push the button, and these rollers would roll these two canisters in, and then when it hit the other side where the wall was, you'd push two other buttons, and it'd go all the way to the front of the cargo bin, and you just kept loading them up that way until they come all the way up and block the door, and you just shut the door. One Those person L- could load the whole cargo bay. Those yeah. were LD3 containers. Right. Yeah. yeah that's that's right. right. The, yeah. the translation system and the cables were a nightmare. Yes, they were. Yeah. I yes, can that. Somebody, somebody wanted to say something. Was it Jerry? Yeah, Who Neil? was it? I, I yeah, did Don. A, I, did, I did a short uh, stint in cargo sales in Miami, and I can tell you that the uh, introduction of the 1011 to Eastern was great for sales reps uh, because the lift capacity in that airplane was tremendous. Um uh, 
I don't know if you're familiar with Homestead back in the 70s, but there was a lot of avocado fields down there. And those yeah. avocados were shipped by by ground in two, two and a half days to New York at five cents a pound. <laughs> well, we we went in there and said, listen, you guys, we'll send containers down here. You load them up, and we'll fly them to New York in two and a half hours for five cents a pound. Mm. Well, <laughs> it was a gimme, you know. I mean, it just it was amazing. Uh, the money that was made on that airplane when it wasn't broken. <laughs> yeah. That was well, <laughs> underline that. <laughs> it would have been all right, I think, if it had different engines. Uh, you know, the other thing about uh, freight and cargo, and I, I didn't know this until I did get involved in sales, but but uh, carrying uh, the mail, that was a very, very profitable uh, uh, commodity because I don't remember what the cost per pound mile was, but uh, in the morning when those originators would take off, it was probably 1,500 pounds of mail going like to Atlanta or New York, and it was a tremendous amount of money that, that was realized just on those flights alone. So there was a lot of money to be made in the bellies of these airplanes. You know, uh, well, we've got we uh, called, uh, we someone. Ten eleven, the golden goose, because it laid golden eggs of overtime. That's true. When I was manager in the engine shop, the people that worked for me just loved the RB two eleven engine. They worked overtime and made a fortune. <laughs> yes, they did. Yeah. I want to ask our Canadian listener: uh, Are you on the line of from? Uh, Canada? Do we have a caller from Canada? Yeah, Renee McKinnon. Hi, Renee. Good to hear from you. Let me ask you, uh, you were in Montreal or Toronto? I was in Toronto. Yeah. Did we, uh, we didn't uh, run any freight back and forth, uh, you know, just uh, QCs back in the day? Yeah, we had the QC came in. uh, It would come in in the evening, go down uh, a cargo flight out come back in the morning, and uh, we would be sitting in the lounge loading passengers watching the QC come in, and they would uh, strip it of all the cargo, put all the seats in, and the people were there just watching this amazing operation by Eastern. And I used to be at the gate, and I would tell people, this is amazing what you're seeing here. It's a cargo flight, and you're going to be flying out here in a passenger mode in just a few minutes. <laughs> wow. That's yeah, amazing. Was. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. I didn't. I don't think I ever flew a trip up to Mon- Montreal on the QC. Seems like mine went all to Louisville or somewhere like that. And uh, but uh, yeah, real good that's, that's great. And of course, mm-hmm. when the 1011 came into uh, Canada, uh, all the freight got gets was down there. And uh, um, okay, very good. Good discussion on uh, on air freight. I learned a lot. Excellent. Uh, and I don't know about you others, you you guys, but uh, uh, I've worked for a company out uh, on, in Hawaii that uh, we did freight business, but we were hauling our freight in what they call uh, the uh, DC-4, which was uh, the 
Oh, golly, I've just skipped my As long as you right can keep now. those R2000s running, right, yeah. Neil? <laughs> yeah, R2000s, that's exactly what we had, four of them on, uh, on the aircraft. And uh, it was uh, Sir Freddie Laker's uh, invention that he put a big old swing nose on it and uh, put the cockpit a little higher than the fuselage area. And it kind of looked like a, a 727 uh, that, uh, uh, but at any rate, it was an ugly airplane. And even, <laughs> we, used to, we used to even have uh, pilots that would come in from United Airlines or somewhere just to come over to see that monstrosity of an airplane. <laughs> but uh, we flew it all over the islands in Hawaii. And uh, I got the chance to fly it, and it was, it was a lot of fun. And uh, so that was my experience. But we were hauling mostly pineapples and uh, stuff oh, yeah. there. And Dole is a big Good company destiny. there. Yeah. So anyhow, but it's a lot of fun tonight listening to you guys. And and uh, that's about all the time we have for tonight's show. But, uh, Dorothy, what do you have for next week? And we also have uh, one of our hosts is ill. Can you tell us about that, Dorothy? Yes, um, we have George Jen. He's usually a regular host um, with us, and unfortunately, jo- he got uh, George got heart pains uh, that led him to three stents. But uh, they removed those or inserted those. But that wasn't the major issue. He has a uh, blood platelet issue right now, and that's what. Um, everyone needs to keep him in your prayers and uh, have them be able to locate what the issue is and be able to uh, resolve it without anything that's uh, overbearing for George because sometimes that can go into chemotherapy if it's a very bad blood platelet issue. Um, But on a good note, uh, our account is 1,022, thanks to another member, that's on uh, May 7th, and that's Mary Lou McBee. Uh, Mary Lou worked for Easter 1960 to 1986 uh, for 25 years at the Tampa, Florida Reservations Office. It was a wonderful experience, she writes, and she missed seeing the many friends she made there. And she said, by the way, your years for the date of birth only goes to 1927, and she was born in 1925. Don't you just love it? (laughs) (laughs) We did have a a question, too, from our member, uh, Bob Robar, and he wanted to ask uh, how to get our web store. So I just wanted to make a note to the members that you just have to go to www.ealradioshow.com and to the web store. That's as simple as that, and you could order what you need to do. And we're so thankful that he is asking the question, and it's a good reminder for our uh, members who know it but don't really keep it in the foremost of their minds. Thanks again, uh, too, to Reba for their sponsorship and other members who contributed uh, they certainly keep our program going, and uh, not only the program, but the legacy of Eastern. We want to keep that just as direct as we can in the public eye. Uh, the REPA's first annual reunion is September 4th to the 6th. Now, that's a Wednesday to a Friday in 2019. It's going to be at the Embassy Suites Hotel in Kennesaw, Georgia, 
and there's lots of information, and uh, you might have got the REPA, uh, repartee, and the information and the uh, application are in there. But you can get it, too, on the website at repaonline.com. Now, we have a whole group of nice programs that are coming up. We have another one, Sunrise at Eastern Wall. Looking forward to that. Uh, I was very interested when I learned all the things that Eastern did at Sunrise. Uh, we have the Memorial Day that follows that. And coming up is going to be the future of drone aviation, and that's going to be really mind-boggling, uh, followed by the Eastern Family of Hobbies. So we have a great program lineup. We'd like everybody to continue listening to us. We thank all of those that still do. want to remind anyone with the future coming up and our repartee being uh, said that it's going to be put to bed for a little bit, not as often as they got it this time. Remember that you, too, can use our website. We're there. We can post what you need to post. So just keep us in mind at EALRadioShow.com, and you can write any time at all to host at EALRadioShow.com. Back to you, Neil. captain as usual be sure to tune in again next monday may 20th when america's favorite way to fly returns to the cyberways and the radio show watches the sunrise at eastern sunrise at eastern is the title and we'll bring back more great eastern memories with this we sign off by playing a little ditty made popular by the champagne music man himself lord and one and Good night, Eastern family and friends from around the world, and good night, Eastern Airlines, wherever you are. We love you, Eastern. We love yep. you, Eastern. Good night, Eastern. Say a prayer for George. Yeah, we Say definitely will. Thank Absolutely. you. And Jim, great show, guys. Thanks so much. It was great, Neil. I really enjoyed it. Lots of good information. Good show, Neil. What's the most-